You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. School of Humans. Howard Mandel, a northern Jewish boy fresh out of law school, decided to move down to Montgomery, Alabama in 1969. I wanted to be in Montgomery because I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer, and that was the heart of racism in the South. Howard arrived in an Alabama still functioning, in many ways, as a renegade state, defying the Civil Rights Act, which had been passed five years prior. In most counties, there still weren't any Black people on voting rolls. There were no Black people on juries. Voter suppression has a long history in Alabama. When the state constitution was rewritten in 1901, convention chair John Knox opened the proceedings, saying that their goal was to establish white supremacy in this state. The state levied poll taxes, literacy tests, and convoluted property requirements to vote. Then, like now, people convicted of certain crimes were not permitted to cast a ballot. And as for people willing and able to fight voter suppression in a court of law, there weren't many. When Howard got to Alabama, there were only about 10 civil rights lawyers in the entire state. The New England native and Georgetown law graduate arrived in a whole new world, the Deep South. Most aspects of Alabamian life remained segregated. So the mayor of Montgomery at the time was a gentleman. His name was Emery Foam, and this mayor carried a pistol. He was just racist through and through. He was the usher at this first Presbyterian church. And one of his main jobs was to make sure that no African-Americans tried to come to church. Howard moved to Montgomery for his first job, clerking for federal district court judge Frank Johnson. I don't consider having, quote, stuck my neck out. I value the uh, decisions that I've made and the effect of those decisions. And my oath 
as a United States judge, decide cases like the law requires that they be decided. So technically, you had no option if you're going to uh, be a good judge. That was an interview with Judge Johnson in 1995, after he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Strangely enough, infamously racist Governor George Wallace and Judge Johnson had grown up together in small-town North Alabama, and both ended up being influential leaders in the state. But ideologically speaking, they were about as far as they could get from one another. When I finally met him, Judge Johnson, we went out to dinner at a restaurant, and we were waiting in line for, I don't know, 15 minutes, and we finally got into the main restaurant, and I saw that there were only about three people eating. So I said to Judge Johnson, I said, why are all these empty tables? Why'd they have us waiting 15 minutes? He said, that's because nobody will sit within three tables of me. He was such a pariah. Judge Johnson had been an instrumental part of many important civil rights cases of his time. He had ruled against racist Alabama lawmakers since the early 1950s. He ordered Montgomery to integrate its swimming pools and buses. He ruled in favor of the Freedom Riders. But it was when he first ordered schools to desegregate that Johnson truly became the enemy of dedicated white supremacists. Johnson had to have two full-time bodyguards, U.S. Marshals, sitting in front of his house every single day. He and his family received death threats constantly. His mother's house was firebombed. And yet, despite all that, Howard knew that this is where he wanted to be, to become one of those handful of civil rights lawyers painstakingly working towards desegregation. I'm Josie Duffy Rice, and this is Unreformed, the story of the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children. Episode 6, Scallywags and Carpetbaggers. It's the end of 1968 in Montgomery, Alabama, and Mary and her four companions had just told Denny Abbott about the abuse they endured at the Alabama Industrial School. Denny was the chief juvenile probation officer in the county. He already knew about some of it, the horrible conditions, some of the violence— but he was rattled by their vivid descriptions of their, quote, nightmarish routine of hard labor, beatings, and sexual abuse. It was this conversation with the girls that made Denny realize he had to do whatever he could to help the black kids at Mount Meigs. And I said, you know what? I can't be the kind of father, can't be the kind of father to my own kids if I walk away from those girls. But there was a lot to figure out. Good intentions wouldn't be enough. There was no inevitability of justice here. So there was a real question about strategy. How could Denny change what was happening at Mount Meigs? And also, who would help him? The cruelty at Mount Meigs had flourished for many reasons. But indifference to the suffering of Black children was a major part of it. And it would take something pretty significant to shake up that indifference. 
not another committee or task force, not another list of recommendations, a real change. Denny couldn't make such a seismic shift happen alone. He badly needed an ally, someone willing to take on the Alabama criminal legal system on behalf of Black children. He needed someone as horrified by Mount Meg's as he was, but ideally an insider, a person well-connected enough to get stuff done despite all the blue bloods and red tape. And that's when Denny remembered Ira Dement. Ira, I-R-A, Dement, D-E capital M-E-N-T. Ira is the lawyer we mentioned last episode, the one who had filed a lawsuit on behalf of that runaway teenage girl who had been locked up in solitary confinement in the dark for days. Ira was uh, in private practice in Montgomery. So I knew he cared about kids, and I knew that he was very powerful and persuasive as a lawyer. Ira was 34 when he and Denny met. Like Denny's boss, Judge Thetford, Ira came from an old white Alabama family. But Denny knew that Ira was willing to fight for kids, including black kids. Ira believed in the Constitution as this document that protected everyone, and he was willing to represent just about anyone. He didn't always have good judgment, and he had made a few very suspect choices in his professional career. Namely, a couple years before, when in 1965, Ira had represented the Ku Klux Klan in a federal case where the Klan had been accused of preventing schools from integrating. He later implied he did it because they were willing to pay him. And by the way, he lost that case when Judge Frank Johnson rightfully ruled against him. Either way, by 1968, Ira was ready to fight on behalf of the black kids at Mount Meg's. He framed the deprivations at the school as nothing short of unconstitutional, claiming the absolute denial of basic and fundamental human rights to Negro children who were incarcerated in a concentration camp at Mount Meigs, Alabama. So that's the reason I went to see him. So Denny told Ira about Mary and the other girls who had shown up to his office. He told him about the abuse that the children at Mount Meg's were facing. And it turned out that Ira had his own suspicions about Mount Meg's. As Denny wrote in his book, entitled They Had No Voice, Between Us, We Already Had a Fat Catalog of Evidence and Plenty of Ideas About How to Fatten It More. So Ira decided that he wanted to be a part of this. He wanted to help Denny bring attention to what was happening at Mount Meg's. As he put it, Well, it's the difference between fundamental right and fundamental wrong. It's that basic. Ira and Denny then had to decide how they wanted to handle this. So Ira called Governor Albert Brewer. Ira thought maybe there was a chance that the governor just didn't know about what was happening at Mount Meg's. That if he knew, he'd be outraged enough to handle it. But that was not the case. He uh, stated that there was a committee he had appointed that he would be happy for me to confer with. I told him I had never seen a committee accomplish anything. He wasn't wrong. We mentioned this last episode, but there had been committees convened before, and nothing had changed. So off the bat, Ira concluded two things. First, they would need to file a lawsuit. What was happening at the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children was not only wrong, 
but he believed it was unconstitutional. There was a problem, though. We couldn't go to state court. That would never have worked. The judges were all fishing hunting buddies of each other. It was a good old boys club filled with judges who had fought equality under the law at every juncture. As Denny wrote, this was a case about basic civil and human rights, and no state court in Alabama had anything but the most dismal record on either front. See, Denny was in law enforcement. Ira was a lawyer. They both knew that what the law said didn't matter as much as who was on the bench making the decisions. Hence Ira's second conclusion. They would have to go big. They decided to file a federal class action lawsuit against the school, the administrators, and the board of trustees. The law is intentionally opaque, and the procedural elements of it, what court you file in and why, are intricate and kind of boring. But here it's pretty simple. This is the late 1960s, and the federal government was far more progressive than the state of Alabama. In fact, during this era, the Supreme Court was maybe the most progressive it had ever been, before or since. Filing a federal case meant there was a slightly better chance they'd get a good-faith judge. But it was a big move. A class action like this, especially against multiple defendants, it signaled that the wrongdoing wasn't a one-off that abuse of children was endemic to the institution. And by suing the board, the lawsuit made it clear that the fault was not only with the active perpetrators, but the passive enablers. For decades, trustees had just let cruelty flourish, which meant they were responsible too. This suit targeted the whole system. On January 22, 1969, a county clerk stamped the lawsuit, officially filing Charles Stockton et al. versus Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children in the United States District Court for the Middle District of Alabama. The lawsuit listed as plaintiffs five brave black boys, including Charles Stockton, ranging from ages 13 to 15, who were suing by and through Denny. We don't know exactly how these five children were chosen. We know that they were kids that had been in Denny's custody as a probation officer. But beyond that, we just don't know much about them. And honestly, given the conditions of Mount Meg's, they could have probably chosen any of the students there. But in order to file the lawsuit, they would need students willing to affix their name to the filing. Students who were willing to attest that they had suffered these harms. The suit spent pages laying out the deficiencies of Mount Meg's, like the understaffing, the lack of education, the child labor, the overcrowding, the crumbling infrastructure, the extreme heat, the lack of privacy, the absence of vocational training, and the lack of funding. It also accused school administrators of physical abuse, in particular Superintendent E.B. Holloway and Matron Fanny Matthews. Abuse like hitting kids in the skull with broom handles, or beating kids so badly that it caused a miscarriage. Being a child at Mount Meg's meant, quote, being imprisoned in a penal colony, which is constitutionally, factually, and totally unfit for the purpose for which it is intended. So, that was it. 
The nine-page lawsuit was filed, out there for everyone in the country to see. And Ira and Denny weren't only asking the court to address the abuse and the horrible conditions. They were also demanding that the state integrate Mount Meg's and other juvenile reformatories. The next day, the lawsuit was all over the news. The Montgomery Advertiser and the Selma Times published stories about the abuse that the kids had suffered. And with the publicity came the backlash from the community. From Denny's friends, family, and especially his boss, Judge Thetford. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. It wasn't like Denny had been quiet even before filing this lawsuit. He'd expressed disappointment and disgust, both privately and publicly, about countless elements of the juvenile system. But filing a federal lawsuit? That was next level. Denny and his neighbors in Montgomery, they had their differences, sure. But he had a lot of friends, and people admired him. He liked to officiate high school games and go to church on Sundays. He played football in the local police league. Old copies of his resume show a list of affiliations a mile long. And even now, he's kept placards and schedules from a ton of conferences he attended and groups he was a part of. He'd been vice president of the Montgomery Social Service Club, president of his kids' PTA. He taught part-time at the local university. This was his home, his community. Plus, Denny was in law enforcement. He was a member of the police union and the Alabama Council on Crime and Delinquency. The local paper mentioned him often. He was powerful, he was respected, and he wasn't even 30 years old yet. After we filed the suits, people that I had known my whole life, uh, that I'd grown up with, some stopped talking to me, uh, neighbors stopped interacting with me, store owners turned their backs on me, my kids were called names going to school. Unless you were there, it's really kind of hard to explain what that was like. You can imagine that this must have been a lonely time. Denny was a whistleblower, but no one was exactly impressed by his bravery. 
the ripple effects to what it did to his wife, his kids. And then, of course, there was his job. Over the past few years, Judge Thetford had, at least publicly, supported Denny's push for a new juvenile detention center. So when Judge Thetford found out that his subordinate went over his own head after he stuck his neck out for him, he was furious. The day after the lawsuit was filed, Judge Thetford sent Denny a letter. And in it, he claimed that Denny never told him how bad things were at Mount Meg's. But he wasn't embarrassed or regretful. And for someone who supposedly just found out about the abuse that these kids suffered, he didn't mention them once. Instead, he made it clear that whatever connection the two of them had was gone. In that letter, Thetford said, As you know, Over the years since I have been judge of this court, I have depended upon your integrity, trust, and ability. Filing a suit in federal court without my knowledge is a distinct betrayal of that trust and of the court for whom you work. He uh, called me into his office, I think the next day of when he found out about it. And he was irate that I had done that. And he said, you know, you've betrayed my trust and... uh, I said, well, I might have betrayed your trust. I don't think I betrayed the trust of the kids I'm supposed to be trying to help. But he suspended me from my job for 15 days. A 15-day suspension without pay for insubordination. It was eventually reduced to 10. Now, you may be wondering why Thetford didn't just fire Denny. And the answer is that legally, he couldn't. Denny did not serve at the pleasure of any judge. And so Thetford didn't have the power, but he was trying to get it. Later, when the county granted their annual merit raises, Denny was the only person not to get one. Look, it could have been worse. We know what happened to people, particularly Black people, who were willing to fight for equality under the law. Denny's house wasn't bombed. He wasn't shot or killed. And in fact, the five juveniles who were listed in the lawsuit were probably at much greater risk than he was. But still, things in Denny's personal and professional lives weren't exactly great. But the case, on the other hand, the case was going about as well as it possibly could, thanks to two strokes of luck. The first was that the case ended up in the docket of none other than Judge Frank Johnson. There was no Alabama courtroom more willing to consider the plight of Black children than his. And as we mentioned before, Judge Johnson knew something about being a pariah. Still, there was a long way to go between just filing the case and actually winning it. But then, thankfully, the second lucky thing happened. Ira later became the U.S. attorney uh, for the Middle District of Alabama. This meant that Ira DeMent became the head of the federal prosecutor's office in the heart of Alabama. It's hard to explain just how important this was. Ira goes from just being one of the only progressive lawyers in Alabama to being one of the most powerful law enforcement officials in the state. He went from being one guy fighting the state of Alabama to being a prosecutor with the weight of the entire federal government behind him fighting the state of Alabama. Plus, simply getting a job like this put Ira and his work in the national spotlight. And that became its own accelerant. It greatly increased the chance that the kids at Mount Meg's would get some genuine attention. 
The facts of the case hadn't changed at all, but the calculus shifted significantly. And his new job made way for another remarkable shift in the case. Suddenly, federal authorities set their sights on this lawsuit against Mount Meigs. After I became United States Attorney, I interpleaded the United States and requested that the Civil Rights Division and the FBI become involved. When the FBI came down to the school to observe, they saw evidence of the cruelty that Denny and Ira had reported. Here's what one instructor at Mount Meigs told the FBI during an interview. I have observed numerous beatings to inmates with both fan belts and broomsticks on almost a daily occasion. Inmates would receive these beatings for such things as being late to dinner, being noisy in the mess hall, attempts to escape. Meanwhile, Holloway is not happy about these FBI agents sniffing around, looking into how he runs the school. In May of 1969, he wrote an indignant letter to the governor complaining. In it, he said, One of the agents told me that I was not to question the students about what they had talked about or punish or intimidate the students in any way because they had talked to the FBI. He lamented that after the FBI left, he had more pushback from the students. In August of 1969, a 17-year-old girl at Mount Meg's named Diane allegedly went to Fanny's room and told her, I came up here to kill you. I'm tired of messing with you. And in the courtroom, Diane's story was completely different from Fanny's. Court officials determined that Diane had definitely been beaten before. She had bruises on the backs of her legs and around her shoulders and other scars from previous injury. Fanny said all of those might have happened in the tussle. But child services officials determined that the injuries were too old for that. Despite clear evidence that Diane had been abused, the court punished her instead of Fanny. The juvenile court judge, none other than William Thetford, ordered Diane to be tried as an adult. She got sentenced to six months in adult jail for battery, knocked down from a charge of attempted murder. Meanwhile, Superintendent Holloway was starting to get a little nervous. He wrote a letter that really stuck with me to one state official in November of 1969. It seems as if everyone is out to get me and is using every means possible to do so, he wrote. After 23 years of hard, honest work, here I would like to remain until I have reached age 65. But due to the pressure and strain of this year's work, I find it impossible to go on much longer. He said, I am confident that I have done my best. A month later, a number of people, including Superintendent Holloway, Fanny Matthews, and Tom Glover, were subpoenaed. But after searching all the material we had and visiting several archives, we were only able to find Holloway's deposition. It was December 1969, almost a year after the lawsuit had been filed, Holloway was careful about what he would share on the record, but even the little he said made it clear that the kids were being worked half to death. He said he had them working 1,500 acres, milking 35 cows a day. And then the lawyer doing the deposition, a lawyer for the Department of Justice, he started questioning Holloway about the abuse. The lawyer asked if Mr. Glover had a paddle, and Holloway said, I'm sure he has one. 
He told the lawyer that six months prior, he'd started a discipline committee to cut down on corporal punishment. He said it was only then that they stopped just letting anybody just punish a boy for just any little thing. Now, he said, boys will be brought in for fighting. We give them five licks, that's all. The lawyers never brought up fan belts. Nobody asked Holloway why he and his coworkers beat kids until they poured blood or passed out. There were no questions about the sexual abuse, and nobody mentioned the rock pile. The case was national news now, which was bad news for the state of Alabama. According to Denny, state officials were doing all that they could to avoid this case going to trial, which would surely be both embarrassing and expensive. As the case carried on, Superintendent E.B. Holloway fulfilled his promise. He retired in May of 1970 for quote-unquote health reasons. And he wasn't the first one to leave. Within days of her deposition, matron Fanny Matthews resigned and left Mount Meigs. After Superintendent Holloway left Mount Meigs, the state of Alabama asked J.B. Hill to come on board. J.B. was the former superintendent of the other industrial school, the one for white boys, He believed the situation at Mount Meigs was so dire that he came out of his retirement to take the job. He was the first white superintendent at Mount Meigs. Right off the bat, Superintendent Hill asked to look over the school's financial records, and he learned that there weren't any. No budgets, no ledger book, nothing. He looked everywhere, and all he found was $35,000 in unpaid bills but no cash to pay them. He had to write the governor and ask for money to pay off the debts. J.B. Hill stopped all the abuse and stopped the farming program. And he hired staff that uh, were competent and could deliver programs because the federal court had said, these are things you're going to do. There were more changes too. The most dilapidated living quarters were torn down All the girls were transferred to other schools. And most importantly, new guidelines for corporal punishment were introduced. For a year, Judge Johnson monitored Mount Meigs, holding the possibility of a trial over the heads of the board, the administrators, and the state if they didn't address the problems at the school. But by 1971, he'd seen enough improvement to issue a final ruling. That July, more than two years after Denny filed suit, Judge Johnson ruled for the children of Mount Meigs. His final judgment stated explicitly that the school had to stop overcrowding, employ a social worker, and provide real medical care. He also said that the farming program had to be limited and that most forms of corporal punishment were no longer permitted at Mount Meigs. And, 17 years after Brown v. Board, he ordered the desegregation of the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children. Now it was just the Alabama Industrial School. We had integrated training schools. That made things better for everybody. I got a lot of letters of support from people who started to look at things a little differently. And yet, you can see how even this ruling left the door open for some of the same harm that had always existed at Mount Meigs. The worst parts of Mount Meigs were given permission to continue, just in a limited capacity. 
boys could still be forced to farm as long as it was consistent with the school's vocational and training program. Corporal punishment was still allowed, but, the order stated, only with a prescribed paddle. The order was limited, and the law was too. Once the federal case ended, so did the constant oversight, and that meant there was still room for kids to fall through the cracks. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Despite its limitations, Judge Johnson's ruling was a watershed moment for Mount Meg's. But even after the ruling, Denny was still hearing new stories of children who'd been mistreated and abused at Mount Meg's. And then, in 1972, Denny stumbled across the name of a boy named Emmett Player. Five years before, back in 1967, Emmett Player had been a 10-year-old kid who didn't seem to have anywhere to go. His mom had recently died. His dad was in prison. So without a sentencing, without a social worker, without any judicial oversight whatsoever, they put 10-year-old Emmett in a car and they drove him to Mount Meg's. Law does not permit that. The law said kids had to be at least 12, but many who were sent to Mount Meg's were Emmett's age or younger. Even Lonnie went there when he was just 11. Plus, Emmett had been placed at Mount Meg's without being charged or seeing a judge. Emmett had done nothing except be a black dependent child, and he stayed there five years. So Denny decided to try to help Emmett. But he realized that Mount Meg's wasn't the only culprit here. I quickly learned that the homes for dependent children were run primarily by church groups. I applied to each and every one of them for Emmett and each and every one of them refused because he was black. Denny and Iris' suit may have integrated all the juvenile detention facilities in Alabama, but Judge Johnson's ruling in that case didn't say anything about the integration of church homes. So, uh, that's when I ran into Howard Mandel. That's Howard Mandel, the young lawyer from the beginning of this episode. 
by 1972, he'd finished his clerkship with Judge Johnson and was one of those handful of civil rights lawyers in Alabama. So there's a term used after the Civil War, still used by Southern whites. You were either a scalawag or a carpetbagger. I was a carpetbagger. You know, I was this liberal Jewish kid coming down from the North, and here I am in Montgomery, Alabama, doing my thing, and I'm going to file civil rights cases. Denny was worse in their eyes because he's a scalawag. He's a local boy. A local boy who is defying the old guard, the scallywag and the carpetbagger. And they had a plan. So I saw this as more than just Emmett Player. This was a class action that needed to be filed. I said, you know, here we go down this road again, but we have to do it. So we filed a second federal court class action lawsuit in 1972. And we sued all the Methodists and all the Baptists and all the Presbyterians and all the sheriffs in the state of Alabama uh, on behalf of Emmett and kids like him. During the first suit, almost four years prior, Denny was mostly focused on just one institution, Mount Meg's. But this time, he's going after churches. There's no question it's going to make a lot of people upset. On Friday, November 17th, 1972, Denny and Howard filed their suit. And on Monday, Thetford summoned Denny to come to his office. Denny entered while Thetford was dictating a letter to his secretary. Dear Mr. Abbott, Thetford said out loud, ignoring Denny, but clearly intending him to hear. Within the past month, I instructed you that there were to be no suits filed by any personnel of the Montgomery County Youth Facilities without my prior knowledge and approval. This discharge is effective immediately. Yours very truly, William F. Thetford. And uh, the next morning I get up and get the Montgomery Advertiser, which is a local paper, headlines, front page, Denny Abbott, fired. (laughs) Not something you want to start your day with. We could not tolerate Denny's and my suing the state of Alabama and all these children's homes. He was not going to buck his, he was, he had to face his friends at the country club. Now, technically, Thetford still didn't have the power to fire Denny. So once he did, Denny sued him. So Denny was entangled in two lawsuits at the same time. As for the suit against both church and state, the good news was Judge Johnson got randomly assigned to this new case as well. But that didn't make it easy. Pretty quickly, the case devolved into a standoff. I did have a conversation with the head of the, one of the heads of the welfare department. And she said to me, Howard, you know, they're not going to settle. The head people, they got their marching orders. And that marching orders is segregation now and segregation forever. About a year after the case was filed, Howard was reading through the minutes of one Methodist church's board meeting in Bradley, Alabama. They'd had a board meeting, and the topic was, should we settle this case or not? What would God want us to do kind of thing? So they decided to take a vote to the Methodist Children's Home in Selma. So the vote was, should we continue to segregate or should we agree to integrate? And the vote was 13 to 13. The vote was tied. That means the chairperson of the board had to vote as the tiebreaker. And he said, I'm not ready to vote yet. 
And they said, well, what do you mean? He says, I need to pray about this. He stepped outside and went to the chapel alone. He came back 15 minutes later. Everyone's waiting. And he says, I prayed about this, and what I feel is that I'm voting to integrate. I think that's the lesson you learn is that people aren't bad, necessarily bad. They grow up in a certain culture, and that's all they know. And they, But then he was called upon, just like Denny was. I think that's the thing, is when, when you're called upon, how are you going to respond? Everyone doesn't have to be a civil rights lawyer kind of thing. You live your life, and Denny led his life, and he had his family. But when he was called upon, he stepped forward. That's, I think, is a real lesson. I was always impressed by that. He did something he didn't have to do. Howard may be right that a few people did the right thing. But what sticks with me when I hear this story is how much luck was involved from start to finish. Not just with this case, but with the first case, too. A judge like Judge Johnson had to exist in Alabama and had to have both cases randomly assigned to him. Ira and Howard had to be willing to help. The federal government had to get involved. Denny had to take a chance. And the chairperson had to vote yes. Howard sees this as a story about humans willing to do the right thing. But I mostly see it as a story of luck. And the end result? Like the first suit, this case doesn't go to trial. But it was a long haul. Howard pushing bit by bit, following up every loose end, meeting every piece of resistance. Eventually, Johnson ruled that the state of Alabama had to provide Black children access to the same state-run care as white ones. We were thrilled because, again, not only had we reform the juvenile justice system, in my opinion. Now we had reformed the child welfare system for dependent children as well. I mean, they were being abused too. We felt like we had made major accomplishments in Alabama to get justice for black kids. Denny was right that it was a step forward, but the ruling applied only to state-run homes, not private ones. And that meant that church homes were exempt from Johnson's ruling. Eventually, they did desegregate, but not right away. I think they were embarrassed, but these are children. That's what always, you know, and to take a 10-year-old like Emmett Player and say to him, you have to go to Mount Meg's even though you've never done anything wrong with all the problems Mount Meg's had. The welfare department found Emmett's father in prison. And when they talked with him, they found out that Emma had an aunt in a little community called Silicaga, and she was willing to take him in. And Howard, well, he had plenty of other cases to get to. It's like trying to cut a field of kudzu with a hand sickle that's 50 acres square. The problems were so overwhelming that I think you do what you do, not because you hope to make significant change, but because that's just who you are, and that's what your expectations are for how you want to live your life. And then there was Denny. He lost that wrongful termination lawsuit against Thetford, and he couldn't find a job anywhere in the state of Alabama. So he started applying to jobs across the country. He even scored a recommendation from Senator Ted Kennedy. 
But nobody wanted to hire a guy who was such a squeaky wheel, a rabble rouser, a guy who had sued his own job twice. They said, here's a crazy person. He sued his own state in federal court twice. We don't want him here in Virginia or Texas or wherever I was. So um, I went for almost a year without meaningful employment. I had a friend who had a bumper re-chroming shop, and he let me come into his store, deliver some bumpers from him, uh, put up uh, stock in his shelves, clean his bathrooms, sweep the hallways, which I did. And most importantly, after the lawsuits were settled, what happened to the thousands of kids who had been sent to Mount Meg's? I look at what happened afterwards. I don't, you know, the atrocities at uh, Mount Meg's was nothing compared to the aftermath of Mount Meg's. On our next episode, we look at some of the children who were sent to Mount Meg's and later as adults cycled in and out of prison. Some were even sentenced to life in prison, or worse, sentenced to death. Unreformed, the story of the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children is a production of School of Humans and iHeartMedia. This episode was written by me, Josie Duffy Rice, and Taylor Von Lasley. Our script supervisor is Florence Burrow Adams, and our producer is Gabby Watts. We had additional writing and production support from Sherry Scott. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Elsie Crowley, Brandon Barr, Matt Arnett, and me. Sound design and mix is by Jesse Neiswanger. Music is by Ben Soley. Additional recordings are courtesy of the Alabama Center for Traditional Culture. The song featured in this episode is Alabama Boogie by Johnny Lee, adapted with drums and percussion by Jordan Ellis. William Thetford was voiced by Van Gutter. Special thanks to the Alabama Department of Archives and History, Michael Harriet, Floyd Hall, Kevin Nutt, Van Newkirk, and all of the survivors of Mount Meg's willing to share their stories. Additional thanks to Denny Abbott and Douglas Collegian for the use of their book, They Had No Voice, My Fight for Alabama's Forgotten Children. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. If you or someone you know attended Mount Meg's and would like to be in contact, please email mountmegspodcast at gmail.com. That's M-T-M-E-I-G-S podcast at gmail.com. School of Humans. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. 
To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.